The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray in his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash NFL. Coming soon to Podcast One, the Gigi Podcast with Rick Fox, Jace Hall, and Todd Roy. Log on to see the world behind the esports you love and find out what good game really means from the trio who's taken the business by storm, including the three-time NBA champion behind Team Echo Fox. Download new episodes of the Gigi Podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. 60 seconds. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car from True Car. That's right, in the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or at home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Hey guys, do you miss when sports networks cover just the news and highlights without the yelling and fake debates? I know I do. That's why I watch CBS Sports HQ. What is CBS Sports HQ? It's the free 24-hour sports network that's built for fans like you and me. I love that I can get tons of highlights, analysis, and instant game reactions Everything that matters about the game without diving into political and social issues like on other sports networks. And if you enjoy placing some bets or competing against your friends in a fantasy league, their experts are always dishing out their top picks and advice to help me win. So check out CBS Sports HQ. It's always on and always free. No need to pay a subscription fee or have an expensive cable package. Just download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Fire TV, Roku, or Apple TV to start watching today. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson kicking off June. We're into June. Sam, how you doing, man? Doing good. How about you, Steve? Doing great. I see you wearing your uh, your Palazzolo for GM t-shirt. Man. I am. A walking green screen right here. Palazzolo yeah. for GM. The campaign is, is picking up steam. The hashtag has at least like 8 to 10 comments on it from what I've seen. Hmm. This shirt's flying off the shelves at the PFF store. Yeah. Flying. Which, by the way... There's some pretty kick-ass stuff being thrown out there at the moment. Some really good stuff there, Mike yeah. Mike Quinn went on a, a run of firing up a whole bunch of cool designs. 
um, of which that isn't one of them, but that's also there. No, this is a great design. Yeah. The, the good thing about it is, you know, you got the little jet here. Uh-huh. You got jet green. Um, it's got our tagline on the... Do I have to our turn around? Tagline? Well, what yeah. What does it say again? Read it. We're going to get better. We're going to get better. Because um, that's what I said as a strategy. I have actually... A, I have a bigger, more in-depth strategy I'd love to lay out. Okay. So um, you have a deck? It's not in deck form yet. It's not in deck form. So right now, it's currently in bullet points. I, mean, so I have a point, deck guy. If, when I'm a GM, I'm going to have a deck guy. There's only so much time, right, before they actually fill this position. If you want to get the job, you're going to need to present them with a deck before they hire somebody else. Well, first, they need to hear my thoughts here on the PFF podcast because we know a lot of the NFL. They listen to us. Okay. We hear about it every year. Hey, uh-huh. listen to your podcast. Love it. So I'll make my pitch here first. All if right. they show interest... Then, then you put it in the, the deck? deck. Yeah, they need to show interest first. I, I mean, okay. I'm not going to waste my time. Well, I don't think that's how you should see it. I think you should look at it as preparation all my for th- whatever my job. Are all up here. Whatever job presents itself down the line. They don't. When people go for these interviews and they don't get the job, and they know they're not getting the job, they don't see it as wasted time. They see it as preparation for the next one. True. Oh, well, that's what I said about the Bengals job. Right. This is prep. Okay, preparation. All right, we'll get the deck going. Give me a couple of weeks. God. Might be full, filled by then, but right, we'll talk about it later because we asked for questions and they're all Jets related. Some are real, some are you know asking me about the job. So I'll give you guys a job update. <laughs> give you guys an update on everything. Um, we've got you know we're, we're in the middle of the off season, so we're looking for you know the biggest stories in the NFL. Like Hayden Hurst added twenty pounds of muscle. Big huh. story this week. Uh, Marcus Mariota is going to play twelve to thirteen pounds heavier. Next year, I mean that—that's the June news that we're dealing with. As I scour the uh, NFL news, how much are you adding in the off season? No, we're dropping. We're dropping. Yes, oh. I worked out already today. Wow! Did you know that? What'd you do? Uh, it was. Uh, it was a booty day. It was not booty day. It was like total body <laughs> cardio with Kelly and I yeah? this morning. Yeah. Okay. There was some booty stuff in there. <laughs> but we're uh, we're in the middle of twenty one day fix. What are you down to? What's, what do you mean, what, what am I down what to? What do we shed off? That's not how workouts work. No, I mean, I don't mean after that workout. I mean, generally. In the off-season, in your progression, if Hayden Hurst is added 20. I'll drop 10, probably. What have you, what have you cut off? I could probably drop 10. You or could, but you haven't yet. What's remain stat? What do you mean? I just started 21-day fix. And you like and I this hit the morning? Gym. Yes. Oh, okay. And you and I hit the gym last week. We did. And guess what? I might go to the gym with you today. I might do double sessions. Wow. Two-a-days. Because not going to lie, 21-day fix might not be uh, hitting the upper body in, uh, in a way that we need to hit it. <laughs> right? Well, I don't know. I have, I, I, I'm unfamiliar with the, uh, the product offering. It's a, it's a more cardio-driven. Um, it's not just for my wife and comparable people, but... Mm. You know, I might be able to do double sessions. Let's just say that. Two a day. It's a okay. good quick. It's a quick half hour. Quick half hour. Yeah, but it's it's nonstop. It's good. Okay. Sweat a lot. Burned a lot. Had my protein shake and everything. Like I'm feeling, feeling good. Dialed in. Yeah. Now I get to do it for twenty more days in a row. Still, it doesn't seem that taxing, given what you've said about it so Daunting, far. Daunting though. It's dedication. Um, so maybe we'll still hit the gym today. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're in the middle of. Who's putting on weight? Who's doing this? All these ridiculous non-stories. But two stories that we want to hit on. Chris Harris and a one-year $12 million contract with the Denver Broncos. Then we'll talk about the San Francisco 49ers secondary, which we think is an interesting 
nuggets. Sounds good. Just before we jump oh. off the idea of gyms and you know losing weight, putting on weight, etc., did you see the tweet that Andrew Hawkins put out? I did not. From the Tomahawk podcast. He tweeted a picture of his own dad bod, right? Which apparently is two straight years of not working out at all. Like, stop playing the NFL, down tools, nothing. Literally couch eating, not, nothing, right? Yeah. So two years after that, he basically posted a picture of his own dad bod and was like, this is my, um, my accountability. I'm going to get back into it. I want to get back into shape, right? Him, two years of him downing tools and not doing anything is like us trying. <laughs> That's his dad bod. It's like us five days a week in the gym trying to get back into shape. We're about at the same place. So I was trying to explain to Kelly this morning. I was like, all right, I'm, uh, I'm not in, I'm in dad bod mode for mm-hmm. sure. There's like a little, right. little pouch. Um, we talked about it at the gym last week. I've got, um, I've got some dad strength in there. Like I'm not useless when I, tra- when I actually have to lift well, things. You, also, I don't nice. mean, you have dad strength and you have freaky behemoth strength because you're nine foot tall. I mean, I think yeah. large human beings like you just have an inherent level no, of built because, in strength that because other people if, don't have. Previously, if I had taken time off and then started lifting again, it's like the slower process. Now I've got, I've got three kids, dad strength, where I can kind of <laughs> hit previous levels higher when you restart a program, uh-huh. I would say. I think that's, I think that's what right. dad strength is. But I is. think you shouldn't underestimate the level of built-in head start you have just yeah. through being you know, a giant. Okay. I mean, that's fair, too. Um, but you know, there's like a little pouch... There's um, there's no definition anywhere where there's supposed to be definition, <laughs> and you're just kind of like, eh, you know, slumpy shoulders. You're just you're just dad bod. That's it. I've got it. Yeah. Well, I'm one more than the other. I'm off. Yeah. Off center a little bit. So you know, I can relate to Hawk other than you know him being in shape. Once without upon trying. time. Yeah. Without. Without trying. Are we ready now? Yeah. Let's talk sure. some NFL. Sorry. Now, if you guys had just fast forward to the uh, <laughs> NFL portion, let's discuss Chris. Harris, one-year, $12 million contract with the Denver Broncos. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about the importance of cornerbacks, the importance of coverage, and more specifically, the important, importance of covering the slot. And here at PFF, and maybe even part of my Jets pitch later on, maybe it's time to flip the script on the value of the slot cornerback versus the outside cornerback. And Chris Harris would be the perfect example of a guy with consistent, what, elite play at slot cornerback throughout the majority of his career, while still being good on the outside as well. I mean, he is he's maybe the best cornerback in the NFL during his time. I mean, he's top three. Yeah. He's up there with Sherman and Patrick Peterson and all those Well, guys. I think what makes him so great is, is that ability that he can play both, right? Most slot cornerbacks, even the most great slot cornerbacks, are only slot cornerbacks, right? They're, they're amazing players, but... And they always get this kind of um, this slight thrown at them. It's like, well, they only play the slot. As if, you know, playing outside is inherently harder, which it might not be. It's a different skill set, as we've kind of tried to articulate before. Right. And arguably, covering inside is more valuable, even if you're doing it less, because you're only doing it when you go to nickel snaps. There's this inherent amount of base snaps where you don't see the field right because the two right. corners on the outside are always there the third guy covering the slot comes in and sub packages so some those guys are playing less so even if it, it's probably nets out somewhere you know in the middle maybe even somewhere to the outside being more valuable simply because they're on the field more but it, it was always thrown at these guys as a, a slight well they only play the slot they don't cover outside but harris has always done both 
he's covered the slot and he's been their second corner. So when they're in the base snaps, he's one of the two outside guys. And then when they go to nickel or dime, he goes inside and the third guy they bring in just plays the boundary, plays the outside. So his ability to be able to do that is probably unique. Is there anybody that's done that the entire time? He's done like certain, uh, certain corners. Patrick Peterson has had times where he's shadowed receivers and he's followed them to the slot. Revis used to follow people to the slot. But, but, they, but they would have, you know, 20, 25, 30 slot targets in a year, not right. 50, 60, 70, right? It was only a handful here and there. Here's, here's a comparison, right? So uh, over the last three years, during the regular season, the highest graded slot cornerbacks, it's Desmond King from the Chargers, number one, and then Chris Harris, number two. But all the other guys on this list, um, I don't know why you're not using the notes that I sent you. You can't read those? Because I, I it's don't like have size the, four right. font. I don't have the capacity Excuse of me zooming in beyond the two hundred percent that I'm currently I'm zooming doing my in, best, which already best. isn't enough. So Desmond King, Chris Harris, Justin Coleman, Patriots plus Seahawks, Nickel Roby Coleman, Mike Hilton, Bryce Callahan. Everybody else on that list is a pure slot corner. None of those guys are playing on the outside on base downs, right, in base defense. Chris Harris is the only guy that is doing that. So he's got the number two slot grade just over the last three years. And we're talking about a guy who's had elite years before that, 2015, 14. I mean, he was outstanding all of those seasons. Um, But he also has the number eight grade playing on the outside during that time behind guys like Casey Hayward, Dominique Rogers uh, Cromartie, which is a smaller sample size, but I'm still surprised to see him out there. AJ Boye, Akeem Talib, Jalen Ramsey, Darius Slay, and Chris Harris is up there. Really seventh if you eliminate uh, who's this? Kendall Fuller from the Chiefs only has 25 targets. Hmm. So how about that? Yeah. So I mean, number eight on the outside, number two in the slot over just the last three years. Right. I think he's been he's been honestly perennially underrated throughout his entire career. It took part of that is when you come into the league as an undrafted free agent you're working against a fairly hefty bias to begin with to convince people that you're amazing um, it's easier when you play you know running back or something where the yards speak for themselves but right. if you're a cornerback it's harder to obviously demonstrate that you're significantly better than everybody thought you were when you came into the league so harris has been working against that for a while um, and then even then once people accept you're good it's well how good is he we know Patrick Peterson shadows people, albeit, you know, PEDs. Richard Sherman used to, you know, shut down one side of the field, et cetera, et cetera. So those guys were, everybody said they were great. But Harris, I mean, he does really well. He plays the slot. But, you know, how good is he? But I think, according to the grades, he's probably a hell of a lot better than you thought he was, even if you thought he was really good. Yeah, and the thing about Harris, too, he's played multiple schemes. I mean, he played under... Jack Del Rio, which is a little bit more of a zone-heavy scheme. We've seen him. Uh, we always talk about how playing cornerback is not just playing man coverage, right? It's, it's the ability to have a feel for route concepts, for tackling, all these little things. He does all of those things extremely well, does not miss a ton of tackles. He plays zone really well. When Wade Phillips came in, he had that no-fly zone 2015. Other than the game when Antonio Brown absolutely torched him, which yeah. kind of ruined some of his season grade that year. I mean, he was outstanding. I mean, and that was that 2015 Denver Broncos team. That was as good of a defense as we've seen the last uh, eight to 10 years, right up there with the 2013 Seahawks. Of course, they won the Super Bowl. So Harris playing in that man coverage scheme for Wade Phillips for a couple of years, he was, he was excellent there as well. So he has really excelled 
while doing it all. Um, and not to compare him directly to Richard Sherman, they truly do actually play essentially different positions. Different, mm-hmm. they're, a- they're asked to do different things. Uh, but the thing we always say about Sherman, you know, he's been in the Seattle uh, scheme and then he's gone to the 49ers scheme, which is the Seattle scheme. He's done the same thing over and over. Patrick Peterson just finally went to a, a slightly different c- a system last year and did perform well. Um, but Harris has had to switch it up a lot through the years from Jack Del Rio, Wade Phillips, Vance Joseph, a lot of different styles that he's performed well in. Yeah, his, um, so a lot of people get termed as versatile or versatility gets used as the, the descriptor for a lot of people when it's not necessarily good. Right? Right. It's just that they do a lot of things, most right. of them bad, but just doing a lot of things, people call them versatile. Harris has this incredible versatility when all of it is good. Like his ability to do a bunch of things well is maybe unmatched um, over the sort of time PFF has been grading defensive backs. I'm not sure there's been anybody that's been able to do everything consistently as well as him. Revis probably, but that's, I mean, it's a pretty short list. I can't name too many other guys. Antoine Winfield for his time when he was at his best. By the way, I'd Similar say kind of deal in Antoine terms of Winfield's everything well. probably closer. I, I would say Revis is in a... Well, he did everything to an absurd Different level. world. Different but world, man. The point is just the number of people where you can say they do everything well. There's not a single system we could plug him into or a single thing we can ask him to do where he's not good at it. Right. So I'm not saying Chris Harris is as good as Revis is, but in terms Thank of you. listing players that can do everything well, I mean, I can only think of three off the top of my head of which he's one. Yeah. So no matter which way you break it down, uh, he came into the league in what, 2011, and he's pretty much a top three corner during that time. We've seen peak Revis. We've seen peak Sherman. From a consistency standpoint, I think Harris is, is right up there. Maybe Patrick Peterson is, is in that discussion, but as far as longevity during that time, I mean, Harris is kind of the guy. So um, hasn't really shown – I mean – he, he had a slight downtick in 2017. He was good, not great. I mean, he was good. He was very good last year still. He's His had a few more injuries. Because it's, it's bounced every other year to an elite grade. He's gone from elite to good to elite to good to elite to good. And it, well, that's kind of the nature of cornerback play, right? Because a lot of it um, truly is dependent on, you know, if you, if you do have Antonio Brown target, you know, being targeted 10 times against Antonio Brown in a given game or whatever it might be. Um, but but there's that there is a level of consistency there that is um, that has I think separated Chris Harris from. Can everyone I else. Uh, give you a statistic? Yes. So in the last decade, so 2010 onwards, I'm going to this decade, the decade of the 2010s, uh, there have been 11 cornerback seasons in PFF that have a coverage grade above 90, and Harris has three of them. Wow, there you go. So that's pretty good of them. Pretty good. Anyone else have? Uh Multiple. Sherman must have a couple. Uh, Sherman has the best. Um, Casey Hayward is up there. No, I don't think anybody has anybody else has more than one. So there you go, Chris Harris. Very good. Hmm. Is that it? Yeah. All right. There's your Chris Harris breakdown. Very smooth. Very smooth. Yeah. Uh, You sent me a message this morning about the 49ers secondary. Something you wanted to discuss. They had the worst coverage grade. In the entire NFL last year, we've talked quite a bit about how important coverage is. The fact that the 49ers were worst, not great. Um, we do fully acknowledge that there's some 
dependency. There has to be some dependency on pass rush mm-hmm. and coverage, right? So the Niners also had a horrible pass rush. We've been joking for a couple of years. They've been building the 7-3 technique defense. They've got nobody to rush off the edge. But this year now, D. Ford, Nick Bosa, uh, both through, tra- through trade and the second pick in the draft, maybe that changes things a little bit. Um, but for all the injuries that they had last year, guys not living up to expectations can they turn it around from a coverage standpoint on the back end. It's an interesting mix of players. Yeah, particularly as they didn't do anything really to address it. You know, they didn't attack it hard in the draft. They didn't go hard after free agents. The secondary, they basically said, we're going to rely on the players already in-house getting better, which to an extent makes sense. There's a lot of young guys within that secondary um, and Richard Sherman. Uh, So, you could project a certain amount of growth from those guys because they are young. If, if they do get better, obviously the secondary gets better. Um, so, but when you look at the list, it's, it's an interesting group of players. So you've obviously got Richard Sherman, um, who in his career has been, you know, arguably the best cornerback in the league overall. But, but he didn't look great. So he was a guy whose stats were good last year. Yes. Benefited from a lot of overthrows, drops. I mean, he did not look great yeah lowest grade of his nfl career last season by a reasonable distance first time he dropped into the 60s even you know his rookie year right um he hit the ground running if you guys if you guys do follow if you have uh, premium stats you follow pff grades closely you understand um hopefully you understand we're explaining here that the grades and the stats sometimes don't match particularly for corners particularly for corners um usually a lot of times they do a lot of times they do, and it's easier yeah. for us to tell a story. This guy's grading well, and he's allowing a passer rating of 32 or whatever it is, right? But when you see a guy that doesn't have a great grade, and he's given up a passer rating of 50 or a completion percentage in the 40s, then chances are there's something happening. He's either getting downgraded for penalties, or he's giving up open throws that are missed by the quarterback, whatever it might be. Um, and that was pretty much the case for Sherman last year. And teams also just really respected the reputation. Yeah, he did not attack him very often last yeah. year. I mean, there's you can find some gifts out there of Richard Sherman getting torched last season that didn't happen in previous years of his career. Whether or not they resulted in actual stats, um, making it through is sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But even if you just look at the raw numbers, it was a different player last year, right? Sherman for his career has allowed less than forty nine percent of passes thrown his way to be caught. And he has, what, one, two, three, four, five, five straight seasons to start his career under 50. Only one season before last year above 50. Then last season it was 62.5. Yeah, it was so that's different. a huge yeah. jump forward. Um, also a career passer rating allowed of 55, essentially. And the first it was three straight years, so that was under 50. Last season that was 100. Yep. Um, just so, different. you know, even just looking at a couple of numbers there, you can definitely see an impact that last year was different than any other season of his career. Yeah, definitely. And, and he just and he still just wasn't targeted all that often. Right. 40. Yeah. He 40 was still targets. living off of reputation a little bit. 40 targets, by the way, which is joint for the lowest number he's ever seen. Or, or the fact that the other side was just bad. The that rest of the secondary was just so bad. So that was always the Namdi Asamoah question, right? It's how good was he versus how bad was everybody else in that Oakland secondary when he was at his best. Right. I think it's a bit of both with him. 
He was that one year. What was he targeted? Twenty eight times, something. Yes, plus them per game. Um, yeah. And he was also he also had the thing where he basically hid on the less targeted side of the field, never you know never moved to the other side, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was always questions there. But yeah, so Richard Sherman is this thing. How much was avoiding Richard Sherman, and how much was well, why would you ever go with Richard Sherman when the other side is Akella Witherspoon, who's was playing terribly. He was a, he was a disappointment because he was um, he was a bit of a one year wonder at Colorado in 2016. Um, but almost six foot three or above six foot three, so really good size. Had a crazy three cone, just something you don't see for a guy his size. He gave up something like it was three for twenty or three for thirty when targeting him down the field his last year at Colorado. Um, so he was kind of a younger football player, moved really well, good size, and had production. Usually, all that stuff adds up, and it, and it's a good thing. And he had a good rookie season when he had a chance to play. Yeah. In his sophomore year, was just a very, very big disappointment, right. unexpected disappointment. And to give you an indication, the worst season of Richard Sherman's career, arguably, was last year. That coverage grade was 68. Uh, Witherspoon's coverage grade was 39.8. So bad Rough. Richard Sherman was still 30 points better in grading terms than Witherspoon was. Yeah, not So good. again, that's kind of why you don't go at Richard Sherman, because the other side of the field is way, way worse. So he was rough. Um, you know, again, the somewhat cyclical nature of cornerback play, it's, you know, like when a quarterback does that or a pass rusher does that, we feel, you know, those are, those are numbers that are really indicative of what's going to happen next season. It's really a concerning number. It's hard to overcome it. A cornerback, it'll fluctuate a little bit more. So the idea of Witherspoon having a bounce back season is not out of the realm of possibility. So Let's, let's just say the 49ers have Richard Sherman on one side. He's still the best that they have, essentially, that you can count on. Who is playing opposite him? The, one of the options is Akella Witherspoon. We could see him bounce back. Who's he competing with um, that could actually make a move here? Well, the, the obvious X factor is Jason Verrett. He's the one move they did make in free agency. And so Verrett is an all-pro caliber talent who was basically never played in his NFL career because yeah. of injuries. He was an all-pro um, in 2015 caliber right. in 2015. So he is, he is he's as talented as Richard Sherman, and he doesn't have the age issue that Richard Sherman has. So arguably, a healthy Jason Verrett is their best cornerback. But he's long since passed the point. He's in the uh, Tyler Eifert category of, I mean, if you're planning on him being healthy, you're just – teeing yourself up for failure. The Tyler Eifert category of was really good in 2015 and nothing hasn't played since. Well, that and if you're actually counting on him being healthy, you're an idiot because yeah. why would you? Like, no, there's but when you there's sign, zero evidence anymore that he will be. And we talked about him during free agency. We said, look, if you're a team, I take a shot on him. Right. Why not take a shot at Verrett and see what happens? He, his career is 1,266 snaps old and it's, what, four or five seasons old at this point. He's another one of the corners, by the way, that has one of those 90... Graded yeah. seasons, so he's it? in that category of genuinely elite play. But at this point, you can only assume that you can only work on the basis of this is a bonus, right? right. That can't be your plan. If that's your plan, you you've just done things badly, right? Um, yeah, and I and I don't think that is the plan. I mean, right. I think it's it's just. But hey, that's the big X factor in this whole situation, there. right? Is if somehow the stars align and Jason Red heals himself, and you know the body stops breaking every time he touches somebody you could immediately find yourself in a completely different category because you just found an all-pro corner off the street. Right. Um, the more likely guy to be in this mix 
is uh, Tavares Moore, who was a college safety more than he was a cornerback. They made, so they had this Isn't interesting draft. To safety? Well, they had this interesting draft a year ago where they drafted a safety or a corner and moved him to safety. DJ and Reed. A, and a safety and moved him to corner. Tavares Moore. Right. And now, it's kind of a classic old Seahawks thing, right? There's a lot of safeties that are like six two that have the length and all that stuff, and they in the Seattle scheme says, "Man, that's that's our long press corner guy that we like." That yeah. was what happened. If with this guy's more. got great movement skills, he's actually better for us at corner. He fits our prototype at corner more. Yeah. Um, so if they figure out what they want to do with him, he's a guy that could force his way into the mix there because as he's like Witherspoon in terms of having the length, having the size, having the movement skills. And a bit of experience there to do it. And he might actually get some snaps at safety if things don't work out at corner. Yeah. I mean, at safety, they've got Chiquisky Tart, who was a good player. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, not great. And then the other safety spot, I think, is very much open for competition. Adrian Colbert, currently listed as a starter. DJ Reed's in there. That's the guy we mentioned before. They drafted Tim Harris in the sixth round. He was a guy we had more of a fourth round uh, grade on from Virginia. He's got good size. A little bit older, 24 years old. He, his, the, the most... His, the, we have to, by it's in our contract, by law, we have to mention Christian Hackenberg once a podcast. You just did it again? Well, yeah. It's, it's in the contract. You, oh. you need to read that thing, Steve. Wow. Um, but what's most interesting about Tim Harris, the, my favorite nugget about him, is he was in Christian Hackenberg's recruiting class. It is amazing the ways that's that we how Christian long, Hackenberg. That's, that's how long he was in college. Hackenberg has been out of two separate leagues already. <laughs> and he, t- Harris was in the same recruiting class as him. Harris hasn't even debuted in the NFL right. before Hackenberg's been booted out of two leagues. <laughs> two separate professional leagues. To be fair, and he Harris, might have still had a job in the AAF next year as a backup somewhere. God. Sure. Okay. Okay. I can't believe you just trashed Hackenberg. I, look, again. it's in the contract. You need to, you, you've had a habit now of not reading the contract. So I think you need to get in there and, and find the, read the fine print, Steve. It's all in the fine print. Rounding out the 49ers secondary, Jimmy Ward, who's played you know a safety nickel hybrid role during, throughout his career. Kawan Williams, who's uh, been off and on as a reasonable slot corner. Um, either way, they need some improvement. What's their best case scenario? I, I think it's Akella Weatherspoon maybe living up to what we thought he was going to be. And Jason Verrett, by the way, for the, yeah, we talk about like corners getting thrown to the slot. We talked about that with the Chris Harris thing. Verrett was the guy coming out, even though he went in the first round, where I think a lot of people said, well, because he's 5'9", he's small, he's a slot corner, but he played on the outside with the Chargers. All of his, all of his top seasons were on the outside, so he's the guy who typically got thrown to the slot because he wasn't tall enough or wasn't physical enough or whatever people thought, but he was actually a really good outside corner, so I don't think he's going to end up I mean, maybe they put him in the slot if Witherspoon develops and you just want to get Verrett on the field. But <laughs> that's So that's Verrett has that fascinating size thing, and DJ Reed does as well. So he's this tiny cornerback, but played his entire time in college at cornerback. Right. And the NFL just looks at those guys and goes, no, you're too small, you're playing inside. So they're going to improve this year or what? Well, here's the thing, right? The two biggest additions to the secondary may well be D. Ford and Nick Bosa because – We've talked before, there's this discussion about which is more important, coverage or pass rush. And in a vacuum, all things being equal, the data points to the idea that co- uh, the coverage is more important. But nowhere does that dispute the idea that they have a symbiotic relationship, right? They help each other out. Coverage creates coverage sacks, which makes the pass rush look better, gives them more time to get to the quarterback. Equally, 
good pass rush, quick pressure, creates passes that shouldn't be thrown coming out, makes the secondary look better. Also, So they're both going to help each other, and suddenly the 49ers are going from no pass rush, other than what comes interior from, you know, Buckford, Buckner, yep. to potentially a great pass rush. If D. Ford is able to back up a league-leading amount of pressure last season, if Nick Bosa is the player we think he is, if Buckner continues on that trend and even looks better because suddenly there's edge rushers around him, I mean, that could be immediately, suddenly one of the better pass rushers, pass, pass rushing units in the NFL. And now the secondary doesn't have to hold up for three and a half seconds every play. They get a second shaved off that, and they look way better without doing anything. They should. I mean, you, you also get a different style of plays. If you're not, if there's zero fear of the pass rush, it's a little bit easier to take deeper drops, throw the ball down the field, longer developing routes. Maybe teams aren't as comfortable going up against the 49ers because of that pass rush changed the way they play um, just a little bit. The one other point about the Niners in coverage, last year, Reuben Foster, between Reuben Foster and Arkillo Witherspoon, both guys, big disappointments uh, from the 2017 class. Foster, of course, had all the off-field issues, is now in Washington and out for the season, but Foster was like a classic, perfect inside linebacker for that scheme, and he missed a zillion tackles. You know, so in coverage too, he would still flash the great plays that that made us love him coming out of college. But they've replaced him essentially with Quan Alexander for all the issues that Quan has had in our grading system. Still, speed, you know, some speed, athleticism in the middle of the field. He has made a lot of plays on the ball over the last couple of years. If he can cut back on those missed tackles, maybe that ends up actually being an improvement over the Reuben Foster that we saw when he was on the field last year. Well, alternatively, what you're doing is replacing one human missile with a ton of missed tackles with another human missile who will miss a ton of tackles. So it should net out the same. So there you go. There's your 49ers secondary back seven breakdown, really. All right. Are we ready for some questions? Yeah. Which are all... Um, Jets GM related? No, they're not. I don't know. Let's see. Let's see what they are. Let's see. I have no idea what they are. Okay. Um, from James. Are you going to fire Gase and trade Bell if you accept the Jets gig? I guess that is Jets related. Okay, um, I will not fire Adam Gase. I'm going to get to know him a little bit. Let's see. Maybe he is the guy. Okay. Right? Adam Gase, we're fine. We can roll well, with that, him. That seems to be the, that's the way you should approach things, right? So yeah. let's go in. Let's ask some questions. And then we'll see you need to We might have fire. a great working relationship. Um, would I try to trade? I would try to trade Le'Veon Bell, though. If I could play the long game extract any kind of value out of Le'Veon Bell right now, I would, I would absolutely explore it. Hmm. Um, another question. How well do you think Le'Veon Bell fits in with the Jets' offense this season, and how does it affect Darnold's progression? Well, this is ironic because <laughs> well, this is, okay. I, would, I would get rid of him as soon as humanly possible, but he's a great fit for this offense. If I, well, yes. That, those can both be true. <laughs> it's nuance. He's a, he's, a, he's a useful player on your football team. He's also a player I would rather trade and have other assets that I think are more useful. Yeah, it, That's how I feel about Le'Veon Bell. If you're going to play with him, though, very helpful for Darnold's progression if used correctly. And if used correctly, that is as a passing game mismatch. He could play outside a wide receiver. He's played in the slot. He can run those corners, you know, um, wheel routes out of the backfield, those mismatch type of routes. Not just check downs where he's going to you know, try to make a guy miss, like actually taking advantage of of linebackers in coverage. That's how you use Le'Veon Bell, and I think he could absolutely help uh, Sam Darnold. He's this fascinating poster child for this idea of running backs don't matter because um, 
talent-wise, he's as good as any running back in the NFL. He's as complete a player as any running back in the NFL. He, he's, his running style is phenomenal. Um, he's an exceptional receiver. He's one of the top two or three pass-catching backs in the league. He can pass block. He can be on the field you know, every single down if you wanted to do that. He should be the guy that elevates an offense because of how good he is and because of what he can do. And yet it's so hard to find any evidence whatsoever that missing him makes any difference to this or made any difference to the Steelers offense. It's almost impossible to find data that suggests that he moved the needle at all. Other than everybody's going to, well, they missed the playoffs. Right. But that, they, that, yes, if you want to reduce it down to simple wins and losses, independent of what was actually happening, then right. you could make the op- that case. The but offense was still looking, great. James yeah. Conner was outstanding. Production, yardage, you know, even how things were uh, run past splits, all this kind of stuff. It's almost impossible to find any evidence whatsoever that anything changed when he wasn't on the field. And not just last year with James Conner and the running backs they, they cycled through before when it was D'Angelo Williams. And Now, you can make the case that the Steelers also had talented backups all the way along, and that's why it didn't make a big deal. But nobody would make the case that those guys are anything like the receiver that Le'Veon Bell is and has been. So, in theory, something should have been changing. I mean, it was um, like, th- there's a Kareem Hunt question later on, too. I mean, Kareem Hunt was a classic, he can catch the ball, he's an excellent runner. The Chiefs had, you know, they release him with all the off-field issues, and then Damian Williams steps in and is just as productive. He can catch a screen pass and run straight. I mean, they, but the running back's dependent on these yes, other situations. that is true, but you could definitely see last year the offense changed in terms of what it was asking the running backs to do when it didn't have Kareem Hunt there from a passing point of view. They, Damian Williams sure. could catch some screens, but they weren't using him <clears throat> in those downfield wheel routes. They didn't right. have that string to their bow. So, but does so? Here's the thing, and here's what I think I can always hear George and Eric like in my ear. Like, does that matter? So, so let's if you take a Le'Veon Bell out of the offense and you don't force him the ball, uh, you know, against linebackers, right? What's the alternative then? Okay, so then you're not going to throw the ball to your running back, which means you're going to throw the ball to your wide receivers or tight ends more often. Which again, they're going to tell you, especially when you have Patrick Mahomes, that's more valuable. So it is one of those. It's one of those things where they always think a, a step further where it's like the running back himself is very, very good. However, if you're going to give him X number of touches to justify his being good, you're taking away from other valuable parts of the yeah. team in theory. I mean, it depends. It depends what it's replaced with, right? Because obviously Kareem Hunt found himself, particularly in that offense with Andy Reid, found himself as a monstrous mismatch against a linebacker a ton of times. Oh, yeah, there was... So those plays he was were very exceptionally valuable. valuable. Yep. Now when you have a replacement that can't do that, it's no longer a mismatch. You don't go there. You go somewhere else. And if those, like, if those targets are going to Tyreek Hill, it's probably still great. Or Travis Kelsey. Right. You know. If they're going to you know, a slightly busted up Sammy Watkins who's not making plays, it's probably a net loss. Right. So, so I think Kansas City's problem is when you took away Hunt you very quickly got narrowed down to basically Hill or Kelsey because Watkins was hurt for a period of time. They didn't have anybody else beyond that. Now suddenly you're getting a little too one-dimensional, and it's becoming a problem. No, they still average over 30 points a game. Well, yeah, they were amazing to begin with, but yeah. you have Patrick Mahomes playing out of his skin. The point is it was better with, with Hunt in there, demonstrably yeah. so. Um, what with, do you mean demonstrably? It was, they still averaged over 30 points a game. It was like a little bit better. Yeah. Demonstrably, measurably. The point is, it wasn't any different when Le'Veon Bell was out of the lineup in Pittsburgh. You couldn't even, you couldn't trace 
the difference. If you were given this, like if you were given the splits with or without with Kansas City, you could point to the ones where Hunt wasn't in and say this is that subset. You can't even do that with Le'Veon Bell missing from the Steelers. It's impossible to, to basically notice his absence. So that's why he, he's this fascinating system where you go, well, he's an amazing running back. He should make everything better. And yet it was hard to identify that happening. This is, I think, a big... So I think what happens a lot of times is what your feelings versus what you can actually quantify happening. And not, not to sound like the, you know, these are the dorks that just, if you can't quantify it, it doesn't exist. Are you it's about not to talk body blows? Well, look, I deleted my Twitter app just to try to replenish the soul a little bit hmm. from, from wasting time and getting into these arguments or whatever. But I, I heard some of it secondhand. So is this what happened on Twitter last year? Here's the other thing, too. We have millions and millions of listeners, most of whom, they, they don't live in our little football world. So what was big for us, or you, because you're still on Twitter all the time, what was big for you last week, which was this whole body blows discussion. I barely, I dipped a toe. Well, you were in there. I dipped a toe into the waters. I dropped one okay. tweet and left. Oh, that was nice. Good work. Yeah. Um, I didn't even do that. I really wanted to. Um, so what was big for us isn't necessarily big for our big, you know, for our massive podcast audience. However, yeah. just to explain it real quick, right? Did Jeff Schwartz start it? Yeah. Okay. So he started it by saying, hey, when I played, I felt like when we ran the ball, it was like body blows and it was attacking the defense and it wore down guys in the fourth quarter. And you'd get his buddy Duke, you know, our, our friend Duke Mannyweather, who you know, he pretty much hates us all the time and is like, oh, no, you know, we, you guys don't know offensive line play. You don't know it as well as us. And, you know, physicality matters. And you get O-line Twitter, um, you know, they, they get together like uh, those Transformers that turned into like the big guy, right? Hmm. They all unite. Okay. They all unite and it's like anti-PFF, physicality wins, and you got to establish the run and all these different things, right? So they start um, – and you even – I think I saw Sean Smith, former Chiefs, tight end he's like nah dude i hate deuce blocks you get hit me with that deuce block five or six times and it really hurts me and all that stuff so here's my point can i read you the tweet just uh, so people know what the hell it is yes so jeff schwartz starts uh this is may the 30th apparently was when they started lots of chatter about establishing the run etr air, air quotes well we're getting there in the nfl and how data shows it's an outdated way to think slash call an offense i agree however i've always thought as a player that ETR was about asserting physical dominance over the opponent. Body blows over a game. And then he has a second tweet that said, there's a fine line between running the ball just to run the ball, especially if it's not working. Uh, But those body blows on defenders slow them down against the pass. It grinds on them. So when you're winning in the fourth, you're running to grind out the clock. They're weak. There you go. Body blows weaken the opponent. Therefore lead to wins. So then I think... From what I saw from the discussion, of course, some, somebody like Eric would jump in and he would say, well, this isn't proven by numbers. And then somebody says, you stupid geek with a PhD, you've never strapped on pads. When actually he was a, he was a run blocking tight end in college, which I love. You know, he, he played. He understands the game a little bit, too. So does George. Our, our numbers geeks understand the game extremely well. So all of that said, I think there's just a big difference between what players feel and what actually points toward winning games so the idea that it felt like we were doing this or the fact that sean smith again former defensive lineman from the chiefs was like man i hated getting double teamed right honestly when i'm gm i'm not gonna care about the feelings of my defensive tackle when he gets double teamed because i don't think his feelings translate to winning all that much that's the point you know he feels like this is harder to do 
right? Just like I think offensive linemen feel like it's difficult to switch from left tackle to right tackle. Even though there are numbers that show guys do it all the time. There's a, there's a learning curve. It's difficult to do, but guys do it all the time. So you ultimately lean on the, the numbers that point you to winning games, right? And just because your defensive tackle doesn't want to take on double team blocks, it doesn't mean that it's bad for your football team to have people running on you. Here's the one other thing. There is this massive disconnect between the what is the joy the joy and feeling that you get from a well-blocked play where you imposed your will and picked up 5 or 6 yards mm-hmm. versus throwing a stick route against off coverage in cover 3 that goes for 7. Right. One is like we did it. I feel great. We established the run. We had 17 good blocks on this play. Everybody executed well and we picked up 6. Versus the quarterback threw a gimme route right. for six or seven that is considered finesse. That one made more yards, but the other one, the offensive lineman comes out and goes, I feel great about that. We, so, did, so, we did awesome. So all it is, to me, I don't think the players are wrong in any of this sense. They're, they're, ex- they're ex- explaining their feelings and they felt good about it and all that stuff. It just comes down to there's, there's, a, there's another logical explanation, which is it's not as valuable as you feel that it is. Yeah. And... The, and um, there's one other thing with that whole, hey, it felt like we were doing well in the fourth quarter and wearing them down. Those guys always come back to this like, well, the teams who run better are probably just better at football anyway. Yeah, well, the point is at that point you're winning the game. What yeah. got you in a position to be winning the game is the important thing, not the fact that once you're there, you're still able to continue beating the team you're already beating. Um, the point I made was simply that I think there's a bunch of things. So this got into an argument essentially with – on one side, leave the Eric's of the world out for a moment, the mm-hmm. guy that crosses the spreadsheets and the gridiron. Um, there was essentially, on the one side, there's the Jeff Schwartz's of the world who's saying, I feel it, therefore it happened, you can't tell me otherwise. And then there's these, what's that guy's name, Josh Hermsmeyer, Frisco Josh, yeah. on the other side, which is coming at it 100% from a spreadsheet and saying, I can't see it, therefore it doesn't. Um, and I, I think there's something in the middle, which is, there are things that you feel playing the game that definitely exist, but if it doesn't actually tangibly move the needle in terms of winning or losing, it shouldn't be affecting your strategy. And that's the ultimate point, right? That, for alignment, that's, that's the ultimate point. Absolutely. You may, for a one-on-one physical uh, moral encounter between you and a defensive lineman, you absolutely want to be grinding on that guy all game long in the run game, and then later on you can see him get a bit tired of that and be fed up if you're winning, right? But if you're not winning, he's now rushing the passer because you're after the pass, you're down 10, and suddenly the whole dynamic looks different. It's, yeah, it's entirely I dependent. I don't deny that some of that stuff exists. I'm with you. Right, but the point is what got you to a position of now we're late in the game and we're either up 10 or down 10 was not you winning your, imposition, your battle of will with the defensive lineman. It was whatever the hell you did as an offense, right? right. So this body blows battle of wills thing the one-on-one battle is not what is getting to that and that's the issue right is that's not moving the needle in terms of winning and losing that is only at the end of the game if you're winning it, it you get to feel great about it there's also i think another thing at play which is jeff schwartz may have experienced five games in his career where he's actually completely right where it's like we ran the ball so much 
we imposed our will that it worked. Maybe there was five games, right? Maybe there's X number of games where it absolutely worked. I always point to that Seattle game earlier this year against the Detroit Lions because Seattle wanted to establish the run so hard this year that they had 42 runs and only 17 passes. And like Pete Carroll was probably there on Monday morning like, guys, that is the gold standard of Seattle Seahawks football. Well, we hit the magic number, 53 right. or whatever it Don't was. even get into that. But we, that's the gold standard of Seattle Seahawks football. We had 42 runs, and the great Russell Wilson only had to throw the ball 17 times. Mm-hmm. It, it was one game where that truly worked. So there probably are. It, and this is what this is all about. It's small sample sizes versus like this macro view of what's going to win over time. There are definitely games in the history of the NFL where teams ran it down the defense's throat or imposed their will or did all those touchy-feely things. But we're talking about over a 16-game schedule, over a career, the best way to win football games is not to do it that way. So I think a few things have changed in the NFL over the last decades to have sort of changed the dynamic of all this thing, right? It used to be that that old adage of when you put the ball in the air, three things can happen and two of them are bad, right? That was the yeah, reason that people didn't pass. Yeah. Um, instead, you just run the ball where still bad things can happen, but we don't pay attention to those. We don't fumbles. Let's not talk about that. That muddies the point a little bit. But anyway, in recent years, passing has become so much more efficient that it isn't the risk it used to be. You know, there was a big thing over the weekend about Joe Namath's statistics. You know, Joe Namath threw a staggering amount of interceptions because back in the day, it was extremely perilous to put the ball in the air. You could beat up receivers. You could do all kinds oh, of stuff. a whole different world. Right. So turnovers were crazy. It's not the case anymore, right? T- or, quarterbacks are 60% completion percent used to be like the gold standard. If you were over 60, you're amazing. 70 is now getting left in the, in the, in the dust. People are completing 70% of their passes regularly. Interceptions are way down. Aaron Rodgers and a bunch of other people have the lowest interception rates in the history of the game. So com- uh, efficiency in terms of completions are higher than they've ever been, and turnovers are lower than they've ever been. So passing has just become so much more efficient in terms of uh, risk reward and it gains like double the yardage so now you're in a situation well okay we could run the ball but they're gone are the days i think where there is almost any nfl defense that is so inept at stopping the run that you can just do it all day long with no downside you're going to be able to move the ball all day you may pull up a bunch of points they're never going to be able to stop you every single defense in the nfl is at least vaguely proficient at stopping the run that's a big point too because the more our guys dive into the numbers now at the college level the run game does matter a lot more at the college level because there's about 130 teams there's a bigger discrepancy between alabama and say uab or ul monroe go up against a defensive end that looks like me but suddenly you can create a 10-yard gap at the line of scrimmage every game right you can and, and there are you know jeff and other guys that played in the nfl when you're playing you know, peewee football and high school football, there's a massive gap of talent. And there are probably many games throughout your career where you just ran it down people's throats. Right. But now the NFL, because everybody's like, well, how many games would Clemson or Alabama win against bu- the Buffalo Bills? Zero. Whoever, right? There's Ever. a huge difference between the best college team and the worst NFL yes. team. As much as college people are like, oh, you know, the, at Bama could beat anybody, all this stuff. So the difference between number one and 32 in the NFL is so tight. There are very few instances where the run defense is so bad right. that they truly can't even This is stop. where, uh, you know, you like to regale us of a baseball story once in a while? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got some stored up, but I'm going right. to hold on. I'm going to hit you with a, an Irish-American Football League story. Well, we've got five minutes I'm before gonna, another I'm meeting, gonna, I and I still quick. have a jet. I can okay. do it quickly. So, 
we used, I played on a team called the West Dublin Rhinos, right? And our cross-city rival, the Dublin Rebels, were typically the best team in the Irish League every single year, right? We played on a defense that was really good stopping the pass, led by a ball-hawking safety, second team, all IAFL, um, and a couple of other people. a ball-hawk, maybe you'd be first team. Led by a ball-hawking safety. We were really good against the pass. However, we sucked against the run. Um, so we would play the Dublin Rebels, and they had this giant behemoth running back who probably outweighed me by like 50 pounds. But I had to spend all game long coming down and defending the run against this guy to the point where I just gave up playing coverage, just basically steamrolled at the line of scrimmage and tried to hit him in the hole so that somebody else could tackle him. Um, but we were sufficiently bad against the run that you could legitimately just run all game long against us and never put the ball in the air. Those teams don't exist in the NFL. There isn't that level of ineptitude on run defense anywhere. But there is at lower levels of football, like, say, the Irish American Football League. Way to throw your teammates under the bus. That's what I heard. Only against the run. Against the pass. Look, I was a secondary member. The guys in the back end, we were great against the pass. The guys up front the bus. didn't necessarily hold up against the run. That's my, um, my quick baseball analogy about how feelings don't match um, the actual out- output or whatever it, it always comes down to sample size and all that stuff. So if, when you're pitching, you have guys in scoring position. You're supposed to toughen up. Right? This wasn't an invitation to, to break. No, out we're making. We're just. It's, it's just all analogies. You're supposed to toughen up with guys in scoring position, and sometimes it works. It's like oh, it's second and third, one out, and I struck this guy out. Got the next guy to pop up. I'm a real, real tough pitcher. Really stepped up at the right time. And if you do that well over a small period of time, you're like, all right, I'm doing great at such things, and my numbers are great. But the stat geek in me knew that you can't keep that up. Just like don't get into those bad situations. There was a big difference between your feeling and whether or not that was good or not, right? My feeling was I was doing a great job at this thing that is very difficult to sustain or or doesn't actually point toward winning over time, right? So there's a lot of that, a difference from a player in what you feel and what actually points toward winning games. That's... I think is the uh, biggest issue with the whole body blows thing. If you're listening in Ireland, you should all go sign up to play with the Dublin Rhinos, by the way, just so I can uh, redress the throwing them under the bus thing. All right, you've now got three minutes to hit me with your Jets proposal. All right, here we go. I am the owner, Christopher Christopher Johnson. Yeah. I am Christopher Johnson. What do you got? Why should I listen to you? From a team building standpoint, I'm going to fully acknowledge to you that I don't know everything. All the other guys are going to tell you how smart they are at player evaluation. I don't. opening. It is, right? I don't know everything about player evaluation, but because you know the rest of the league isn't going to be that much different at evaluating players, but the PFF data is going to help increase our odds by 10%, 15%. We're still working out the exact percentage, but we're going to increase our odds compared to the rest of the league. Okay? Okay. We don't know that much better than everybody, but we know better, Okay, at least by a little bit. We're going to leverage our scouts better than ever. All right, We're going to use that data properly. Not in touchy-feely ways, but in hard data. We're going to find value in the draft by accumulating picks. We're going to get proper value in free agency. We're going to adhere to our free agent values that we set before. We're going to take advantage of the trade market, especially with those accumulated draft picks. We're going to use and develop more role players, especially on the defensive side of the ball. It's a role-player NFL. We're going to get tight end erasers and guys of the like. Mm. Okay? We're not afraid to miss in the draft. We're going to have no fear of missing in the draft. That's what the accumulated picks is for, and we're going to attack those value positions and really understand risk and reward. I'm not here to make me look good in front of you. I'm here to build the organization for the long term. 
even if there were some misses along the way. It's all part of the plan. Okay. Um, all of our plan is going to be based around which quarterback we have. Once we have the elite quarterback, we build around him. If we're sitting there in mid-tier quarterback situation, which I think we are with Sam, all right? I think we are Whoa. with Sam. Whoa there, Sparky. We're going to continue to look. We're going to build around him. We're going, to, we're going to sign him to a flexible contract, that second contract, though. Flexible contracts, so we can always find that next guy. We're not stuck with a poor quarterback. That's a whole different strategy. I'm going to have a new strategy of keeping four quarterbacks on the roster at all times. Special teams are going bye-bye in the NFL. The bottom of my roster is going to have four or five quarterbacks. We're going to continue to develop them. We're going to feature them in the preseason, and the other idiot NFL teams are going to start throwing draft picks our way for backups. That's what we're going to do at the quarterback position. I'm going to work with our coaches on maximizing every decision, optimizing play calling, game planning. We're going to get great coaches around them that we know make their players better, and develop them. Our advantage is the data, understanding it, and that will be our biggest advantage with the Jets. In conclusion, in the, Palazzolo for GM, and we're going to get better. We're going to get better. There we go. Demonstrably. So that's the pitch, Christopher. If that hasn't sold you, I mean, if that hasn't sold you, I don't know if we can help, really. That'll do it for the PFF NFL Podcast. We'll see you next week. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.